This is Theology on the Go, a brief interview about an eternal truth. Many pastors are expected to be 17 different things all at once. You have to be people's coach, people's counselor, a good preacher, a good leader. And then, of course, we have so many famous pastors who are fallen. Hello and welcome to Theology on the Go. I'm Jonathan Master, joined as always by James Dolezal. James, good to see you today. Good to see you, Jonathan. And we are glad to have on the line with us Gavin Ortland, who is the senior pastor at First Baptist Church in Ojai, California, where he lives with his wife and his kids. And he has written a book called Theological Retrieval for Evangelicals, and the subtitle is Why We Need Our Past to have a future. And so Gavin's kind enough to come on and talk to us for a few minutes about it, about the book. Welcome. Hey, good to be with you guys. Thanks a lot. So I want to talk about the overall premise of the book first, uh, this idea of retrieval. Um, what, what do you mean by that? What is it that we need to retrieve? What is it that we as evangelicals don't have that we need to get back? Retrieval is just a broad term, and and typically it just means um, drawing from historical theology to do constructive, systematic theology today. So it's it's not a, a strict method. It's more of a, of a statement of just a, a way of of uh, going about doing theology, a sort of theological set of instincts, so to speak. Um, and the broad idea of the book is just that as evangelicals today, we don't do that very well, and that we've, in some respects, kind of cut ourselves off, especially from the early church and the medieval church. And I think a lot of Protestant Christians especially have really focused on just their Protestant identity and, and not seen much value in, in drawing from the early and medieval church. So the book is just a case that there's nothing um, that we're compromising as Protestants if we are engaging the early and medieval church. And then I just walk through a number of specific ways where I think we have a lot to learn and, and there's a lot of benefit to be had from that kind of retrieval. Maybe you could say something briefly about <laughs> that sort of modern Protestant ethos that sort of thinks of the Apostle Paul and then a brief interlude, maybe a little bit of Augustine and then Martin Luther and sort of how how that got lost to us. And I don't want to do a, a full-blown historical analysis of why, but maybe you could even give a couple remarks as to why you think that sort of dropped off our radar, that kind of um, broad ecclesiology. Yeah. To start this comment, I'll just say that I would identify as an evangelical, and I'm really grateful for evangelicalism, but I do think we have some eccentricities and just some points where we're different from most Christians throughout space and time. And James, I've been appreciative of your work on divine simplicity. This would be a good example of where a doctrine that most Christians have affirmed and have thought to be pretty foundational for a proper view of God's transcendence over the world. Many evangelicals not only reject that doctrine, but reject it without even realizing that we're going against the grain. And we're not even aware that we're taking a sort of revisionist view by, by rejecting that doctrine. And I think sometimes that's because there's a kind of me and my Bible approach to the theology. And I don't want to be too critical of evangelicals. I certainly don't think that's always the case for evangelicals. But I think it's often the case that we've, we've got a, a kind of ahistorical way of doing theology where we, we think of basically theological method is, is reducible to interpreting scripture. And I think one of the problems with that is as Christians, we're a part of the church. 
and we interpret scripture in the in the context of the spiritual family that we live in and that family doesn't just extend throughout space it also ex- extends throughout time and so there's other christians that we need to learn from as we interpret scripture so i think there's a lot of ways where we can just develop and and kind of bulk up our theology by doing a better job at engaging the tradition how does this differ in, in your understanding from the idea that I think many evangelicals and, and, and certainly in a sense Protestants in general are reacting against, which is that, that tradition in and of itself is the only source of authority or the primary source of authority. How do we avoid that kind of overemphasis on the authority of tradition and yet still engage with it in the way that you're describing that's a good question. I'm, I'm sure there's there's probably lots of different ways we could go with that, and, and I won't give a full answer to that. But, you know, one thing I found helpful is going back to the reformers themselves and taking a look at how they engage the tradition, because I don't think anyone would look at Martin Luther or John Calvin or some of the later Protestants like Francis Turretin and say that they were overly respectful to tradition. You know, they, they were very much uh, banging the drum of sola scriptura, that the Bible is our only final authority. And yet they had enormous respect for the Christian tradition. And they drew regularly from the early church, especially uh, to, to a degree from the medieval church, from certain theologians. And they understood their whole effort as reformers to be going back to the purity of the early church. I've found so many passages where Calvin and Luther are not only appealing to scripture, they're appealing to the church fathers to oppose what they saw as these sort of accretions that come along in the medieval era. So I think we can help people with this if we point to the reformers and say, look, being respectful of tradition doesn't mean we're compromising the unique and final authority of scripture. Uh, it didn't mean that for the, the original Protestants, and it, it doesn't necessarily mean that for us today. I wonder if sometimes the problem, maybe you can reflect on this or, if we, or you can pass it over, but I wonder if sometimes the problem is just that we, we aren't sure that the tradition has actually said or clarified anything for us that we couldn't clarify just as well on our own doing exegesis. It's not a hostility to the tradition, but they just seem superfluous maybe to our calling as Christians if we already have the scriptures. Um, it seems like we're complicating things. If we bring in church councils, for instance, it occurs to me that, that it's, not a, it's not an overt, willful hostility as much as it's just don't see the need. Maybe you have a different thought on that. No, I think that makes a lot of sense. And uh, you know, one of the metaphors that I've used for retrieval is um, a metaphor of travel. So just as going back in time it exposes you to different ways of looking at the world, so also going to different parts of the world today have a similar effect. Going from the Western world to um, the Eastern hemisphere has a similar kind of analogous effect. And um, I, I just think, to your point, there it's helpful to think through how much benefit there can be to questioning your own priest. It's sort of like looking in the mirror, you know, traveling to a different culture. You, you get a whole new perspective on your own outlook and, and it questions some of your presuppositions. And so maybe one of the things that can help us feel our need for the tradition more is a recognition that we have cultural blind spots. 
we have eccentricities. We have ways of doing theology where we're not naturally set up to succeed just because every culture has limitations. So that's a point that to me should humble us and help us realize we actually need the perspective of other Christians living in other times. I like the way you say that, that we're not naturally set up to succeed. That's well put. I haven't heard it said that way. I would say that for myself, even in coming to simplicity, that my education or other assumptions I had uh, inherited, even if they weren't taught to me, did not necessarily position me to clearly see the truth of that doctrine. I was hamstrung, and I didn't know it. And, and it was reading the tradition that made me see that there were ways of thinking about these things I hadn't even hadn't even occurred to me. I have a, a question about some of the case studies that you mentioned in your book. Your book is broken up really into two sections. One, where you describe the need for retrieval and the benefits of it, and then you you give some specific instances where this could be useful in broadening our horizons or um, helping us see things that we might not otherwise have seen. And and the last of the of the case studies is actually on pastoral ministry, and you talk specifically about Gregory. I found that one surprising and perhaps very useful for, for many of our listeners. Uh, can you talk a little bit about what you found when you did this work of, of retrieval, this work of trying to understand the tradition and, and go beyond our own time and place uh, with respect to pastoral ministry? Yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, to me, we definitely have a need to help develop our, our pastoral theology today within evangelicalism. A lot of pastors are struggling with burnout. It's, it seems as though increasingly there's so many, especially in this current political climate where things are so polarized and all the outrage that is in our culture, a lot of pressure is put on pastors uh, many pastors are expected to be 17 different things all at once. You have to be people's coach, people's counselor, a good preacher, a good leader. There's so many. Uh, and then, of course, we have so many fallen, famous pastors who are fallen. And, it, you know, one way of getting into what do we do about that is to approach the understanding of the role of a pastor theologically. Um, because so often we approach it pragmatically of just you know, a, what can a pastor get done and what are the results? And I found going back to some of the ancient voices on pastoral theology, and in this chapter you reference, it's uh, Gregory the Great, who uh, was one of the popes of the early church, a sixth century pope. Calvin called him the last good pope. And he was an amazing leader and administrator, and he reflected a lot on the unique pressures that pastors face. And he talked about how difficult it is. He called the pastoral office the art of arts. And he spoke about how difficult it is to balance all of the different pressures that come at you as a, as a minister. And um, I have just found such a refuge and such a sense of relief in thinking theologically about what it means to be a pastor and not, because it seems as though in our culture, if we don't think theologically about that office, we'll succumb to thinking pragmatically about it that's where the pressure will tend to push us. And uh, so there's a real freedom in going back to saying, okay, theologically, what exactly, how does God want me to view my office? And I think in some ways that takes some of the pressure off to be all these different things that people might expect us to be. So I've just found Gregory a, a personal encouragement to think about uh, what does it mean to be a pastor? 
Yeah, I think one of the things that was striking too was while most pastors today wouldn't list the book of pastoral rule as a go-to manual or guide, it does it does shed light on the fact that the complexity of pastoral ministry is not a new phenomenon. It's not something that's just come about because of the rise of technology or because of uh, consumerism or something like that. That it it's always been complex. It's always been trying. It's always required theological grounding in order to make sense of it. Yeah, to, to your point there, I mean, Gregory thought of the pastoral office in these two realms of, of balancing the active and the contemplative. And he personally really felt that tension of, on the one hand, uh, he doesn't want all the administrative load that gets put on his desk, so to speak, as a pastor. He hates it. He doesn't want to do that. On the other hand, he knows he needs to. And so his whole vision is, how do I balance what he would have called the contemplative and the active? That is, how do I balance my inner life of prayer and devotion to God with my external responsibilities? His answer to that and his way of thinking about that is really relevant to pastors today, I think. That's interesting because I think a lot of people view, if you take the pragmatic view of the pastoral office, um, the pastoral office is just a kind of... um, a wax nose that can be reshaped according to the perceived needs of the moment. Uh, and yet, as you're retrieving, your whole effort of retrieval here, even of going to Gregory's pastoral rule, is actually, and maybe this is the assumption all retrieval requires, that there are certain constants that aren't going to go away or disappear just because our circumstances in time or culturally have changed. That there's something we can go back to that's going to be true now because it just is true. Yes, that really resonates with me. And it, it, you know, it just comes to my mind. I've never had this thought before, but as you said that, this new thought came into my mind. And that is that it seems as though humility is actually an, a key ingredient of retrieval. Because I have a number of friends who take the view that based upon our current knowledge through the advances we've made in the modern era, it's really a sort of waste of time to go back. Uh, because early theologians were not facing the questions that we face. And I do feel that a more humble posture is to recognize whatever advances there are, there are, as you put it, there are constants. And we can benefit a great deal from uh, listening to the testimony of earlier Christians in these areas where there are constants. And then even where we have made advance in our knowledge, um, we can go back to the tradition as a, as a reference point to check ourselves and to make sure we're not veering too far off the path. Gavin, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you for your work in this book. I think it's a good introduction to some of these ideas and some of these thinkers. So thank you for writing it, and thank you for taking the time to speak with us today. Absolutely. Thank you guys so much. Really enjoyed it. James, you and I have talked quite a bit about the notion of retrieval and it's become a little bit of a buzzword in certain theological circles and some of that's really good and some of that I think we'd both look on with a little bit of suspicion. But one of the things that is a challenge, I think, is that the notion is so broad, this idea that we should be reading and familiarizing ourselves with the the early church sources and even the medieval sources. Um, That's that's such a, a broad undertaking. I think sometimes people ask the question, well, well, where do I start? So let's say I'm convinced. 
and and I think one of the benefits of Gavin Ortland's book is that he does give you, as I said at the end, a sort of tasting menu. Right. He he does a little bit on a few topics and shows you that in fact there are there are many places to start. Um, whether that's something like divine simplicity, or whether that's on satisfaction theory of the atonement, or whether that's on pastoral ministry. In other words, there's a in so much as the church has historically spoken to all of these things, you can sort of take your point of entry anywhere. Uh, I think what his book does is it gives us little avenues into that tradition, but I think the ethos of the book is that theology is done in community, not only the community of the living, but also, if I may say it this way, the community of the dead, though being dead yet speak to us through their writings. Um, what I think we would want to say, and what Gavin wants to say in this, is not that this is a exercise in nostalgia or of simply appropriating the past in order to give ourselves sort of credentials, but really it's a looking at the past because we really believe those in the past may have seen something or said something in a way that just wouldn't naturally occur to us given our own modern resources that could broaden our understanding and appreciation of the right understanding of Scripture and of our Christian faith generally. Yeah, and as he said at the end, and I thought this was a good note to end on, uh, it, it, it is an outworking of humility. It's not something that we're engaged with to go uh, sifting through for quotes that we could just slap onto whatever conclusions we've drawn to, to buttress them and, and to give some kind of intellectual heft to them. It's actually an exercise in humility because you are listening and, as you said, engaging with a community of sources that uh, take you beyond yourself and, and, and the limitations that we all have as individuals and as people in our time and place. But even as we discussed with him off the air, to convince someone of that uh, really can't short-circuit the process of just personally going back and engaging in some of these historical works. And right. I think the the nice thing is we live in a time when doing that has never been easier. That's true. In terms of accessibility to text and good translation. Yeah, there's so, no excuse. So maybe we could recommend to our listeners Gavin's book as a, as a sort of um, help to yeah. guide you into that great conversation of the past and give you and maybe stimulate your interest to take a point of entry for yourself. No, I think that's right. I think it serves that purpose well. So if you'd like the opportunity to win a copy of this book, you can go to placefortruth.org, click on the Theology on the Go link, and there'll be an opportunity there for you to enter to win Theological Retrieval for Evangelicals, Why We Need Our Past to Have a Future. And we're grateful to Dr. Ortland for coming on and speaking to us about it today. We're also grateful for you as our listeners. We love hearing from you. Some of you are able to donate, and we appreciate that. You can do that on alliancenet.org or placefortruth.org. Many of you have recommended this podcast to your friends and have even um, provided us with reviews, nice reviews on iTunes. We appreciate that. So thank you for listening to Theology on the Go, a brief interview about an eternal truth. <laughs>